said, I, I'm JD. Uh, I'm a church planner in residence. So what does that mean? Uh, Mill City, you're planting a church. Did you know that? All right. We are, uh, uh, the church plant team has been meeting for a while now. There's about 25 of us who are super excited to plant a church in northwest Minneapolis in 2019. Uh, northwest Minneapolis, some of you may know Robbinsdale, the Victory neighborhood. There's a group of people who have been praying and seeking God's uh, leadership for what a church would look like in that area. It's very exciting. We have our first sort of outward-facing event we have a Christmas party for neighbors this evening at 4.30. Pray for us. Or if you've been curious about this church plant thing and want to learn more, this is a great opportunity to just show up, hang out with us, hang out with the neighborhood a little bit, uh, and hear more about what's going on uh, with the church plant. So pray for us in this season. We've got a couple milestones coming up. We hope to have a name by the end of the year. Very exciting. We're seeking a location to worship in. We're going to launch group life this spring. In winter, so it's an exciting time. If you if you've been curious about that, don't hesitate to reach out to myself or Pastor Christian Ann. Our emails are on the website. There's a page on the website under the participate tab with more information about the church plan. So check that out. So it's been a crazy year for me. I haven't been up here talking with you all since June. It's been a while, uh, but some things have happened. One, namely, like I've been talking about, the church plants up and and moving forward. And I had a kid. Another one, so we're on to number two, and um, in this Advent season when we're talking about baby Jesus and having a baby in the household, it's just like a perspective shift. It's amazing how children are uh, this like revelatory presence in your life, and they can bring like levity to the situation, laughter, pain, all of the things all at once. Uh, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, uh, our little one Daniel was sick, and I was at home uh, on daddy duty, over a Sunday, and um, if you've ever been in a household, uh, sorry if this is TMI for you non-parents, but when you become a parent, your threshold for like talking about uh, things that you wouldn't normally talk about or bodily functions just goes way down and you're just kind of open with it. So brace yourself, I warned you. Uh, if, you if you've been in a, in a household that's uh, breastfeeding an infant, you know that that's the most valuable resource in the household. And it's protected, and you better not spill it. You know this. So, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like four months into this dad gig, and I like know how to heat it up. I feel like a chemist a little bit, like I'm getting it just the right temperature. And I'm doing so, and uh, on this particular day, our supply is a little short, so I got to be a little careful. And wouldn't you know it, the first bottle I pull out of that warmer just spills all over the counter. And I'm like, crap. This is bad. This is real bad. And the anxiety starts to lift. I'm like, I only have like a couple ounces left. And this kid, if he doesn't get his milk, all heck is going to break loose. And this is going to be rough. So I pull out the reserve. I'm feeling, I'm like, okay, it's okay. There's grace in Jesus' name for you, JD. And I, t I kid you not, the next one, just like a Dumb and Dumber movie or like a Three Stooges thing, it like slipped out of my hand and I'm like bouncing it around the kitchen. And it ends up all over my shirt in the ground and I'm ticked. I am so mad. Why I'm so mad about this thing? Who knows? But you're in the moment. You're so intense. And I turn around and Daniel's in one of those like little walkie things. He just gives me a big grin and just laughs the loudest I've heard him laugh before and look me straight in the eye. And in that moment, he totally shifted my perspective and I was, we had a little talk. I'm like, Daniel, yeah, this is pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Let's, let's go into the deeper reserves, the frozen stuff. Everything will be okay. 
children, people that come into our lives, new relationships, they change our perspective on things. And this, this sermon series, uh, The Light of the World, in Advent, as we kind of rehearse this anticipation of Jesus coming into our lives over Christmas, is about that. It's about this question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world, and how does that change who we are on an every day basis. And it's been, this conversation's been really awesome. Joe Saxton led the first conversation uh, talking about how the light of the world exposes things in our life that sometimes we don't feel that comfortable exposing, but in doing so, uh, we receive healing from that and direction. Steph talked about how the light is a sort of guide for us. Jesus being the light of the world is, is a guide that leads us out of darkness in our lives. And each of those texts uh, that they read were, were narrative texts. And I want to continue asking this question this morning, what does it mean for Jesus to be the light of our world uh, right now, here and now, back then, but here and now as well? And I thought I'd take a little different approach. Instead of reading maybe a typical Christmas story passage, I want to read John 1. John 1, 1 through 14. So if you'll uh, open your Bibles with me there, let me pray before we approach that scripture and just acknowledge Jesus' presence in this space, invite him uh, to teach us through these scriptures about what it means for him to be the light of the world. So if you'll pause with me, let's just acknowledge his presence and welcome him here. Jesus, you're here. God, let that sink in as we approach uh, these scriptures that speak of you. God, um, the most important thing this morning is not the words that come from stage, but the words that you whisper in our hearts as we seek you this morning. God, so we trust in your leadership. We ask you to speak. We ask you to illuminate in our lives what's going on and how you want to speak into it, how you want to lead us. Jesus, we trust you. Help us uh, as we listen and look at your text here. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I read this, uh, it'll be up on the screen. Uh, just a little backdrop. So this is the Gospel of John. There's four Gospels. This is the one that scholars think is written the last. There's some argument about that, but it's pretty, pretty decided that this is the latest Gospel. So it sort of assumes the Christmas narrative and jumps right into some of the more deeper, poetic, profound meanings of what Jesus' arrival means. And this is like the introduction to that book. So in a way, John is outlining the most profound things about the story he's about to tell throughout the rest of the gospel. So for us this morning, it's, it's maybe a different approach than a narrative. It's maybe a more contemplative, uh, reflective text. So I'll try to read it slowly and try to listen to it uh, with an open hands and open heart, if you will, to receive something from this text, almost like you were listening to poetry or uh, a text with that sort of intent. I'll just give you a few more heads up. In, it, it'll use a couple words in here to describe Jesus, so I'll indicate when they're describing Jesus. Um, and also, I want you to notice how this follows the creation pattern. Think with those two things as we read this. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the, li the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children uh, born not of natural descent, nor human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that a beautiful passage and a head-scratcher all at the same time? There's some wonderful language in this. Let me just kind of go a little bit piece by piece here. As I mentioned to you at the beginning, John chooses to kind of follow a, crea- follow a creation narrative. If you'll see at the beginning, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is this rich, rich uh, phrase and a metaphor throughout the ancient history to describe uh, something that calls something into being, that creates order in the midst of chaos. And John is saying, even at the beginning of time, Jesus was present and was the very thing that called the order, the chaos into, or called the chaos into order, that brought things to be present, to exist. And John is saying, that very being has now moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson puts it, has come near. And the other thing he uses to describe is the first thing that happens in creation. The first thing that God creates in the creation narrative is light, separating light from darkness. And he says, that light is Jesus. Jesus brings light to all. I think the most uh, poignant verse for us as we're talking about what does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world for us is verse 9, where it says, Jesus gives light to everyone. Now, what does that mean? Does he have a little flashlight he passes out when you become a Christian? What does that mean? You know? That was a joke. You can giggle a little bit. Give me some help. No, he doesn't pass a flashlight out, but this is the ancient writer trying to to, to capture this dynamic. So Joe talked about exposing, how light exposes something. Steph talked about how light can guide. It can be something outside of us that we can look towards and gives us a path that we can follow. What the author here is describing, I think, is a light that illuminates us, that transforms us. Later on in Scripture, the Christians talk about this light uh, as something that wakes them up, that's something that illuminates their life. It's almost like a fire igniting something like the wick of a candle to be ignited in us. In some way, Jesus' light, that light that was a part of creation in the beginning, ignites something in our very being as human beings that awakens who we're truly supposed to be and how the world is truly supposed to operate. I mentioned Eugene Peterson, uh, who wrote an uh, uh, interpretive uh, version of the Bible called The Message, and this is how he puts verse 9 through 13. I want to read it for you. He combines the term life and light, 
He's saying, in that way, he's saying, just like the author of John is saying, that the light of the world is the source of very life for human beings. He says the life light was the real thing. Every person entering life, he brings into light. He was in the world, and the world did not, uh, was there through him, yet the world did not even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was, who he claimed he was, the light, he would, uh, and would do what he said, he made them their true, he made them to be their true selves, their child of God selves. Here's what I think the author is trying to communicate about Jesus being the light. We were designed to be in relationship with God. We were designed to be illuminated by Christ's light and life in our life. And when we're not in relationship with Jesus, we live in a sort of darkness, a sort of fog. That's what the author is trying to communicate. Now, I'm, I'm kind of a, a learner. If you're familiar with strengths finders, learner is like on my top ones. I didn't know what that means right off the bat, but I just like, like information way too much. And one of the areas of information that I like way too much is architecture. I'm really interested in architecture. I'm more of an onlooker than a novice or anything like that. I've never designed anything, built anything, but I'm so intrigued by architecture. And one of the things that I've learned about architecture is that they say architecture is really the mastery of light. Architecture is really the mastery of light. And this is most true when uh, electricity didn't exist. So if you look at ancient architecture, it's designed around light. It's designed for the purpose of light to indwell it and illuminate it. Listen uh, to what this one uh, architectural blog that I follow said about this. It said, without lighting, where would architecture be? Would it still have the same impact? No, it wouldn't. Whether it's daylight or artificial light, light draws attention to texture, colors, and forms of the space, helping architecture achieve its true purpose. Now think about that in terms of you being designed and created an architectural piece of God's creation and what Jesus as the light of the world means in relation to you being constructed by God. It means that without the light, we don't realize our full texture, color, form, space, and our true purpose. That's what the author is communicating about what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. When I uh, had the opportunity to travel to Rome, I went to St. Peter's Basilica, which is a beautiful, beautiful space. But you can see this reality in the design of the space. I brought a few pictures of that basilica. And I want you to see and observe in these pictures how light uh, illuminates the space. The space is not truly what it's designed to be without light coming in and making it what it was meant to be. That one on, uh, on the left there is at the very center. As soon as you walk in the door, you're like 300 yards away from that thing, and the light is just beaming through that. It's actually an analogy of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, this whole structure. It's beautiful. But what it's trying to communicate is the same thing that John is trying to communicate in this text, that we are designed 
to be illuminated by God's presence in our life. This is why Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, the way things were meant to be. You will be ignited. Your purpose will be um, set forth in a way that you were designed uh, to be. He says, I have come that you have life and have it abundantly. You might be saying, well, that's nice. That's a nice Christmas thought. That's a great metaphor. But what in the world does that mean for everyday life? What does that mean for God's light to illuminate my life? That sounds like a a really cool Christmas card. But what does that actually mean tomorrow? What does that actually mean for Monday when I go to work? As I've been listening to these these sermons, and as I've been uh, talking to you all considering what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world, I've, I've noticed this in my own life, and I've noticed this in the stories that you tell, that often in life, we experience a sort of fogginess, I would say. We experience a sort of dimness, and this is how it, I experience it in my life. When uh, I wake up, because the kids wake up, and then I go to the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, and then I crash and go to sleep at night. And then the next morning I wake up and do the same thing. It's almost like my life is pulling me forward instead of me propelling my life. Sometimes when start, people start talking about like ringing in the new year and uh, going into it with gusto, I'm like, I feel like I'm getting dragged into 2019, not stepping into it. And I think when that happens in my life, there's a sort of fog of getting caught up in the morass of just doing life, taking steps. And in that fog, there arises questions. Questions like, what am I even doing here? (laughs) What am I even moving forward into? Like, am I being defined more by the things that are happening in my life or by who I feel like God's created me to be? Where is God even in the midst of this fog? Do you, can you resonate a little bit with the fogginess that life can be sometimes? And here's the thing that happens in the fog. Our human brains, when we don't have all the information about the situation, when things aren't fully illuminated, we start to put together stories between details in our lives. Brene Brown in her book, uh, Rising Strong, talks about this and uses the term confabulation. Let me explain confabulation. This is a psychological term that means when people have just strings of details, when when there's some fogginess in their life, they start to build narratives. It's what we do as human beings. We're narratival beings. We make stories to make meaning and sense of our world. But when things are foggy, when there's more questions than clarity, that part of us kicks in. And sometimes the story we tell tell ourselves are not healthy and true. Brene Brown talks about the three most dangerous stories that we tell ourselves. And they have to do with lovability, divinity, creativity, and ability. Let me explain what she's talking about here. And these stories primarily are about our worth. So when we're in the fog of life, when we're in the the quagmire that is our everyday life sometimes, the story we start to tell ourselves when we experience hurt and we don't understand where it comes from, or when we experience confusion and we can't place it with the rest of our life, we start telling us stories about uh, really lies that are uh, centered on us not being lovable. Whether it's through a breakup, 
or a breach of trust or betrayal, we start to think that we're the problem. We start to think that we don't have inherent worth enough to be loved. By divinity, uh, what she means is not that we're divine and we ought to tell ourselves we're gods. That's not what she's saying. She's saying in relation to the divine, we tell ourselves story that we aren't worthy of relationship or interaction with God. This is a story that comes up all the time. Whether it's through the shaming of a religious experience we had when we were younger or something like that, that has created bitterness or a barrier to actually engaging in religious spaces or spiritual practices. We tell ourselves this story that we aren't adequate, that we don't know enough, that we haven't experienced enough to truly be in relationship with God. The other thing she mentions, and I kind of I see this as a domino effect, that if we are believing a story about ourselves that we're not lovable, that we aren't worth love, then why would God love us? Then what value do we have to bring to the world? That's what it's saying about creativity and ability. We tell ourselves stories like we don't have any true value to offer to the world. Our abilities aren't good enough, aren't as good as the other people around us, and therefore aren't valuable at all. In Ricky Bobby's speech, if you're not first, you're last. We tell ourselves those insane stories. And what it means to be illuminated by Jesus in our lives is that when his light comes into our life, when we interact with him, he sheds light on those lies and tells the truth about who we really are. I was joking about this earlier this week, and I said, Jesus' story in our lives kicks these stories in the pants. And what I mean by that is the story that John is introing is a story about Jesus, the God of the universe, loving you so much that he would give up his divinity to take on humanity to communicate to you how valuable you are and how much he loves you. And in our world, Jesus is still pursuing our neighbors, everyone. He's pursuing us like he did uh, 2,000 years ago where he put flesh on and walked among us because he loves us so much. He debunks the bad story that you're not lovable by moving to the neighborhood, moving in next to you, drawing close, and pursuing you in relationship even when you feel like you're not worth pursuing. Jesus debunks the lie about not being able to have a relationship with him by drawing close and saying, you're adopted in my family. I love you so much that I'm going to go to great lengths to make sure that you know that you have a family and it's God's family and you belong in it and you have a place. And then like it says in Ephesians 2, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Christ debunks the lie that we can't add value to this world by saying, forget that. You're a uniquely designed cathedral, a masterpiece that God put together to be illuminated with my light and life to make a difference and to add value to this world that changes everything. The Jesus story is about debunking the lies that we tell ourselves in everyday life. Uh, date nights happen for Christian Ann and I every once in a while. <laughs> I say every once in a while because it's become less frequent with kiddos running around. But when we get the chance, it's always exciting and terrifying all at the same time. And it's mostly because it's, it's one of the few opportunities we have to be real with each other about what's going on. It's one of the few opportunities where we have to reflect on how our life is moving. And I, and I cherish each of those uh, opportunities to talk because usually the question we land on is, how are you really? 
what's really going on. And for each of us, it's this sacred moment where we let uh, Jesus' life into our life. The last date, the question, or the iteration of that question that it took on was, I asked Christian Ann, and then she, of course, asked back to me, because she's like, you can't answer. Ask a question you're not ready to answer. She asked, what difference did Jesus make in your life in 2018? I was like, whoa, come on. Can we leave work at work? Just joking. We ask those questions to each other. What difference did Jesus make in your life? And Christian Ann told this beautiful story about how she's gone through seasons of telling herself that she's not good enough as a parent. And I was sitting there saying the same thing. I'm like, me too, Christian Ann. We go through these seasons in our life where we don't feel like we have any value to give to our kids. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, how in the world do you believe that? But this is how the human mind works. It gets itself in places where it tells horrible lies about who we really are. And when we create spaces in our life to contemplate Jesus' presence in our life, to reflect on what Jesus means for us in everyday life, those things are illuminated and called for what they are. And every time we have those conversations, each of us feel empowered to live who we were created to be as parents, as leaders, um, in every aspect of our life. So you might be asking, okay, how do I actually, how do I practice this? How do I live into this reality that I ought to live in an illuminated life in Jesus' presence? Uh, the, the ancient uh, church fathers, uh, particularly the desert fathers, talked about contemplation and reflection in metaphors of light. They talked about sitting in the light and the glory of God and like that passage says, I believe it's in Corinthians, where it says, we have seen the glory of God with unfailed faces, and then we turn to the world that we love, and we are illuminated and shine out into the world we love. God's glory, being in God's presence, changes and transforms who we are. Bottom line is, if we don't have the practice of reflection and contemplation in our lives, it's very hard to be transformed into who Jesus is creating us to be. One of the things I'm doing in my life right now is receiving coaching and intercultural competency. And one of the people I'm receiving coaching from is Ramon Pastrano, who's a member here. And he has done some research on how people are actually transformed. And one of the things he told me is, the first step to transformation in our lives is reflection. If we don't create space in our lives to reflect, transformation cannot happen. And in reading uh, from other sources, I read the Harvard Business Review every once in a while and came across an article where an executive coach said the same thing. She said the hardest people to coach in leadership are the people who are not willing to reflect. So the point is, where in your calendar are you creating space to reflect and sit in the presence of Jesus and simply ask, Jesus, what difference can you make in my life? This season of Advent, this season of Christmas, is a season of reflection. It's a season where our work life is supposed to stop, and we uh, have in our calendar, apparently, uh, time carved out to reflect. Often that gets full of all these crazy things, opening presents, doing stuff with family, and then the, the weeks go by and we have no time to actually consider how our year's been and how we're going to move into the next year. Can we just all decide, let's, not that, let's let that story not be true in our lives this season? What I want to challenge you with is, in the next two, three weeks, where on your calendar is a half an hour? And ha a half an hour to reflect 
and ask Jesus the simple question, what does it mean for you to be a part of my life in 2019? And what has it meant for you to be a part of my life in 2018? That's where transformation starts, in those spaces. I was sitting in Starbucks this morning, finishing some notes for this sermon, and I was just struck by the people that would come through the Starbucks in my neighborhood. And I can't help but think, what are the stories they're believing about their life? Do they believe they're worthy of love? Do they believe that they can have a relationship with God? Do they believe God created them to add value to this world? And I had that moment with Jesus where I was like, Jesus, please somehow reveal to them that you are the light of the world. Use me. Use a friend. Use any church. I just had this desperation about me that people are walking around believing false things about who they are. And what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world is he wants to tell them what's most true about who they are. The band could come up. We're going to close with communion. And I just love that we're closing with this. I love that we've chosen this uh, to do this every week because it's Jesus' built-in reflection time. When he gives uh, this practice to us, it's at the Last Supper, and he says, do this in remembrance or in reflection of me. So as we do this this Sunday, if you're a follower of Jesus, if he's the leader of your life, you're welcome to come and participate. You can grab a piece of gluten-free cracker, uh, drop it, uh, or dip it in, don't drop it, dip it in, uh, in the juice that symbolizes his body and blood broken for you. And I think what's beautiful about Jesus creating this practice is every week it reminds us what's true about who we are, that we were worth him coming to die for, that he has made a way for us, whatever mistakes we make, whatever brokenness, whatever shape we'd re- shame we'd rather keep in the dark, Jesus says, there is grace for that. I've taken care of that. I love you so much that I've suffered for that. Do not let that hold you up anymore. Live into the reality of my love for you and walk into who you're created to be. Walk with me. Let me illuminate the path that's in front of you so you can be creative so you can realize your ability and add value to this world. As you come forward for communion, be asking yourself, what stories am I believing about myself? And what story does this communion want to tell me about who I am?